Anyways, we're glad that you're here today, and so we're going to transition now into looking at uh, the Word of God, as we're going to take a look at uh, John chapter 3, and uh, look at a reason why we have to celebrate. What, why do we celebrate today, and why is kickoff such a big deal? Well, on the front cover of your bulletin, you'll see a picture, so go ahead and look there at the front cover of your bulletin. How many of you guys have ever seen a sign at a f- sporting event or a football game that said John 3.16 on it? Anyone ever seen that? Okay, so that's, that's a familiar s- scene for you. And maybe you've you watched TV, and, and over the years you've, you've seen it maybe on a poster or someone's wearing it, someone's got a shirt on. Well, do you know where that came from? Like, do you know how the, the, the tradition of having John 3.16 at a football game has come about? It's good that you don't know, because I know. I did some research this week, and this is what I found. Back in the late 70s, early 80s, there was a guy who came to faith in Jesus Christ, and he wanted to, to develop a way in which uh, he could share his faith with other people and let the world know uh, just about who he was. And so he would go to sporting events, and his name was Roland Stewart. He would go to football games, and he would wear um, a, a multicolored, rainbow-colored wig and have a white shirt that said, Jesus saves in the front of it. And he would always carry a, a poster that said John 3.16. And what he would do is he would position himself week to week. He would position himself between the goalposts. So whenever there was a field goal or an extra point, you know, as the TV um, kind of hones in on the goalpost, he would be position himself so that he could raise up his sign and everyone could see John 3.16 pretty cool, right? It's pretty neat. Well, we also know back in, um, in the night 2009, there was a football player called Tim Tebow. Do you guys know who Tim Tebow is? Okay, you know Tim Tebow. Okay, Tim Tebow, back in 2009, during the BCS championship game, he put John 3.16 on the little markers that were underneath his face. And so the world, he was there trying to proclaim of who he, who he believes in and his faith. And so we see that John 3.16 has shown up in multiple places, multiple times, with a very specific purpose. So, does anyone know what John 3.16 says? Okay, we do. So, I'll read it to you if you don't. Well, John 3.16 comes from the book of John, and it's Jesus having a a communication with a man named Nicodemus. And so, I'll tell you exactly what it says. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So, we see in John 3.16 the essence of the Christian faith. The very foundation of the faith of those who believe in Jesus come to John 3.16 and we see the essence of our faith. And the realistically, what John 3.16 means is that God, the God of the universe, loves all humankind. It also says that, that man has sinned, man the created by God has sinned and is destined for eternal punishment. But eternal life awaits those who believe in God's Son, Jesus. So we must ask ourselves, well, so if that's the message, what then is the purpose of the sign? Why in the world will we see, continue to see John 3, 16 on Tim Tebow's face, uh, on posters as you go to sporting events? And I think it's important to ask ourselves the question, what's, well, what's the purpose of the sign? Well, I think there are two purposes of the sign. One purpose is, is the one that's holding the sign. He has a purpose for holding the sign or making the sign. The holder or the presenter of the sign wants the world to see and wants to declare their hope in Jesus Christ. The second purpose for their sign is not only that they, they want to proclaim for themselves, but they want the seer of the sign to be motivated towards searching for answers. 
So by, by holding up John 3.16, the hope is, is that when you see John 3.16 on a poster or on face paint or other things like that, it'll motivate you in your heart to say to yourself, well, I wonder what that means. Like, I wonder where, where that's at. I wonder what that's all about. And so hopefully the, the presenter of the sign will lead people to try to begin to investigate that. And they'll come to the Bible and they'll say, oh, well, John 3.16 says this. And hopefully it will lean them to begin to see Jesus Christ as the answer to their life. And, and hopefully will begin to, to give their lives to Christ. But what's amazing to me about the purpose of the sign and, and the purpose of this passage, if we take John 3, 16 in its context, what we're going to see is this passage is given us as a very similar design. You see, there was this man named Nicodemus, and he was living his life, and he, he saw the signs of this man, Jesus. He saw what Jesus was doing, and immediately it piqued his interest. He saw Jesus was doing things that he couldn't and was living in a way that he couldn't, and so he led him to begin to search for answers. Look with me in John chapter 3, beginning in verses 1 and 2, and we learn about this man named Nicodemus. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, A ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you are doing unless God is with him. So we see Jesus Christ is going through life being a sign himself. Others see that and begin to ask questions. And basically Nicodemus comes to Jesus on this night and he says, I've been living my life in this way. I'm a Pharisee, which we'll talk about in a second. I'm a, I'm a ruler of, of the Jews, and, and this is who I am. But I see that you're doing these things, and it's different, and I want to know what is different. I look at my life, give an account of my life, and I know that something's not right. What's missing? That's basically the question that he comes to with Jesus. I think it's important that we, to really understand this passage and to fully understand John 3.16, we've got to look at some of the key players in this passage. First, we need to understand a little bit more about Nicodemus because I think that there are many people in the world today much like Nicodemus. You see, Nicodemus, it says here, was a Pharisee. So he was a man that was living his life with advanced or an enormous amount of knowledge of God. He knew much about God. Why? Because he was a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. He had extensive knowledge of the Old Testament. He was a a leader of the Old Testament. He was a teacher of the Old Testament. He was a learner of the Old Testament. He was also part of this thing called the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was the religious ruling body of the Jewish people of the day. We also know from Scripture and from history that Nicodemus was one of the top 70. He was one of the the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was one of the ones that people looked up to and respected and revered even the most. We also see that he was a ruler of the Jews. He was a community leader. He was one that walked into the marketplace and people knew that he was in a place of powerful position. And they were also there because he was, as a ruler of a Jew, he presided over the law. And he presided over the affairs of God's people. So even though we know that Nicodemus had advanced and a massive, enormous amount of knowledge of God, we know that even with all of this knowledge, there's something still missing. There's something missing in his life. He knows so much about God. And what we can learn is that knowledge alone cannot bring us into right relationship with God. Just knowing about God 
is not enough to bring you in right relationship with God. We also know that because he was a religious leader, he had not only knowledge, but he had oriented his life around certain practices that he had hoped would bring him towards God. He was a religious man. He had a, a, set standard, a set of standards or rules that he tried to live his life by. You see, according to the way that he was brought up, according to what his mom told him and his dad told him and what, what his church told him, was that only those that are of Jewish descent have access to a relationship with God. So he, he was brought up thinking that he was one of the spiritual elite, that those apart from being Jews or being of Jewish heritage, had no access to the God of the universe. But because he was a descendant, because his parents were Jewish, and he now was Jewish, he had special access to the God of the universe. He also was taught and was brought up to believe that being accepted by God and experiencing a close relationship with God is only experienced through keeping a set of rules. Do this, don't do this, live this way, don't live that way. And if you can hold to these rules and these regulations, then you will be right in the side of God. But inevitably, through his life, he realized that it was impossible for him to live his life and keep all of these rules and these regulations. He continually lived his life, continually lacking, realizing he was unable to live up to the standard at which this law or this rule was set. And so on this night, on this day, the teacher of the law, the community leader, becomes a student. And he comes to approach this man named Jesus. And we know that he puts himself in a position of a learner, not a teacher at this time, because he refers to Jesus as rabbi, which is another word for teacher. And he comes to this Jesus with a question. He says, I see that there's something special about you. You've come from God. I can know this because no one can do the things that you're doing, live the way that you're living, unless he has come from God. So he begins to understand, he begins to see, and I want us to see today, not only having thoughts about God is not going to bring us into relationship with God. Religious practices also won't bring us into right relationship with God. You may be here today, and you may be a very moral person. You may look at your life and you're like, man, I've never killed. I lied a little bit, but not really bad. Like maybe I speed sometimes, but not really like hurt anybody. If you look at like maybe in my life, if there's this cosmic scale, if you look at my life where good and bad, maybe my good really does outweigh my bad. And maybe because of that, I, I might be right in the sight of this God. And I want you to see here today, it doesn't matter what you've done or what you haven't done. Unless we have faith in this person of Jesus Christ, we stand before God condemned. So it doesn't matter if you've done more good or more bad in your life. It doesn't matter your religious practices. You know, growing up, I was a child, and and I I was brought up in the church. So from the, the day that I was born, even from before I was born, I was in the church every single time the doors were open. And somehow along the way, even my, my parents didn't teach this, somewhere along the way as I was going to church, I developed this religious thought and these religious practices. And I want to share with you today and you can, so you can kind of see what Nicodemus is going through in a very kind of comical way. Somewhere along the way, I understood that Jesus Christ came to give us eternal life. And I realized that I wanted eternal life. And so as I was a five-year-old child trying to figure out this thing, eternal life, life, Jesus... 
I began to think to myself, well, what does that mean? How do I have eternal life? And I opened up our cupboard at home, breakfast, cupboard at home, and inside our cupboard was a box of life cereal. So I thought to myself, if I eat life cereal, then I must have life because my parents, must, my parents love God and they must eat life cereal every single day and that's how they get everlasting life. They get eternal life by what they eat. And so I thought to myself, if I eat life cereal, if I like life cereal, then I'll have eternal life. So I started eating life cereal. So I'm like, yeah, I'm getting it. I've got an eternal life. It's coming into my life every single day. I love it. Milk, sugar, all this stuff, life cereal. I've got it made. This is the abundant life. Can you imagine my dismay the morning that I wake up and life cereal is gone? We ran out of life cereal. Now, as a five-year-old child, my world was destroyed. I ran upstairs, woke up my mom, started shaking her. Mom, we need life cereal. We need life cereal. We need life cereal. She's like, what are you talking about? Like, if I don't have life cereal, I'm going to die. I'm going to die today if I don't have life cereal. And she's like, what are you talking about? So she, we continued to talk a little bit more about this. And I realized she began to correct me uh, in a loving, gentle way. She said, it wasn't life cereal that brings about life. It's faith in this man, Jesus, that brings about life. And it was at that time that I actually came to faith in Jesus Christ. At five years old, I gave all that I knew of myself to this man, Jesus. I didn't fully understand it, but I knew that I wanted this life. And I knew it wasn't going to be found in cereal. I know that's silly. And you think to yourself, man, nobody does that. But I want us to, to believe today that there are people, apart from knowing Jesus Christ, that have something that they're holding on to that says, this is going to make me right with God. I don't know what it is. You may be here today and you may not know the Lord and you may be holding on to something. Like, this is what's gonna make me right with God. My parents were believers. I'm a believer. Like, maybe that's what you're holding on to. Or maybe you're holding on today. You're like, maybe some, somewhere along my, my life in the past, I went down an aisle and I filled out a piece of paper and I got baptized by some, under some water by some pastor. And maybe you're holding on to that as your, your place of faith. Like, you're like, I was baptized, so I know I'm good. Or maybe you're here today and you're like, I'm a good person. Like, I'm a real good person. I try to do the right things. I give money to the poor. I've done uh, Peace Corps for eight years of my life. I know I'm a good person. I want you to believe, and I want you to see from this passage today that none of those things are gonna bring about the life that you desire. It's just like me. You're eating a box of life cereal. What Jesus is gonna say in verse three, and we're gonna read this just, just a second. He says, our only hope is to experience a new birth, a fresh start, a new beginning. That's what he says. He says, that's our only hope. Look with me in verse three. So Nicodemus comes to him and says, Rabbi, we know you're a good teacher unless you do these signs. I, I know you're with God. And then Jesus answers him. And he gets to the heart of his questioning. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus is talking about this new birth. He says, unless you experience this new birth, you cannot experience the kingdom of God. Now, what he's, what he's saying here is that unless you experience or have a new beginning, a fresh start, you cannot be a part of God. Like, you cannot know God. You cannot have a relationship with God. You cannot be part of his nation. You cannot be under his protection. You cannot be one of his children. You can't even be part of his family. Instead, unless apart from this new birth, you are an enemy of God. 
And Nicodemus, look at verse 4. This is how Nicodemus responds. Nicodemus' mind is blown. And he says, how can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Like, think about this. So Jesus is saying this, and, and he's keeping it in human perspective. He's like, I can't go back inside of my mom. Like, I'm big now, and she's still small. That's not going to work. Like, I can't be born again. And so it's blowing his mind because he, Jesus is speaking in, hum, in, in, in spiritual terms, and only Nicodemus can understand it in earthly terms. So Nicodemus says, what? This is not physically possible. And then Jesus goes on in verses 5 through 8 and explains it a little bit more. Jesus answered and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with anyone who has been born of the Spirit. So Jesus replies. He says, It's not a physical birth that I'm talking about. You must be born in a new spiritual way. You must have a new heart. You must have new mind. You must have new eyes. You must be completely changed because you need this new birth. For what he says is flesh, that which is born of flesh, only gives birth to flesh. Flesh cannot make spirit. Okay? So I can, my, my wife and I, as we gather together, we cannot make dogs. Right? We can only make humans. We can only make other babies that are like us. And so in, in what he's saying is, is a sinful person that comes together to make other people, what they get are more sinful people. So sinful people gets carried on down and continued on. So sinful people cannot make holy people, cannot make special people, cannot make people that are right with God. That's what he goes on to say. So he says, if you've had a physical birth, you're still in a place. doesn't matter who your parents are. doesn't matter what they've done. Because you were born into this world, you were born into sin, sin was passed on down to you, you now are a sinful person. He says, you need to experience something spiritual. You need something more. And what we learn from this is a new birth cannot begin in human effort. Like you need to hear that this morning. What Jesus is telling us here, and he's telling Nicodemus is that if you hoped to be right with God, this new birth that he's talking about cannot begin in human effort. It starts as an act of God, not as an act of man. Because he says here, it says it comes from, this new birth comes from water and spirit. This water and spirit come from God. That's the only place that water and spirit come from. We don't have time to really expound on that, but just here. Water and spirit come from God. He goes on to say that this wind, this idea of wind... He says, you should know this and not marvel at this because you see the wind. You don't know where it comes from, but you feel the effects of the wind. In the same way, you don't know where salvation or whatever can come from, but know that it can't come from you. You did not make the wind, nor can you make salvation, nor can you make yourself right with God. But this opportunity to come in right relationship with God, to experience this new birth, only can come from God through God the Spirit. Let's look at Nicodemus' response in verse 9. Nicodemus, again, whose mind now is total mush, and he's turned his head to the side, and his brain that's been so messed up is like coming out into a cup. Like, that's how much he's messed up. 
He says, what? How can this be? What does this mean? I don't understand. I was taught, I was brought up this way, and you're telling me that the whole way that my life, everything that I live my life on now is a, is a, is a farce, is a lie. Jesus answers as he continues to totally tear down the, face, the, the foundation of Nicodemus' faith. He answered him and he says, are you a teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one, he who descends from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus replies with some questions. He's like, so Nicodemus, you call yourself a teacher. You're supposed to understand these things. You're supposed to understand because you have the revelation of God, because God has not made himself apart from us to say, you can't know me. No, God has made himself very knowable to those which he created. God has gone an extensive distance so that we do not have to wonder about this God, but that we can know this God. And Jesus Jesus here is saying, you are a teacher of the Old Testament. You have the whole revelation of the Old Testament where God shows a special love to creation and it shows himself that he continually is loving us, wanting to have a relationship with us. Because you've taken this revelation and you've twisted it in your mind. You're blind. Jesus tells Nicodemus that you're not, because of where you're at and the way that you see Scripture, you're blinded and you're not able to see that all of the Old Testament points to this new birth. Everything that was in the Old Testament points to this one that is going to come that is going to take away the sin of man and one that is going to come to redeem and to restore a relationship with God. And then he gives him an example. He says, remember Moses in the wilderness? Like, remember that? Like, if you don't remember that, let me give you a, a quick hint about, about where this is coming from. He gives him this example and says, remember when God, God's people were in Egypt and they were slaves? Remember they cried out and they said, God, please save us from being slaves. And remember God sent Moses and Moses came in and, and God, through miraculous acts, allowed God's people to be set out into the wilderness or out, into, out of Egypt, into supposed to go to the promised land. But on the way to the promised land, they're in the wilderness because of their disobedience. They didn't go, get to go right in, but they're in the wilderness out there. And, and guess what happens as they're out there waiting to go into the promised land? Like there were some snakes that were all around. And I, I have to imagine that God in his grace and his mercy and his love says, I'm going to allow these snakes to come close to my people. What was taking place is God's people were going about their daily lives and snakes were coming into the camp and they were biting people. And these weren't just like normal snakes. These were snakes that had poison in them. And so they were biting people and the poison was killing them and they were dying. So the people call out and they say, God, please help us. You called us all the way out here just so we could die. And God, who's lovingly always makes a provision for man's sin, always makes a provision, a way to save men, told Moses to do this. This is Moses, this is what you are to do. I want you to go out. I want you to get a staff, get a really, really big staff. And then what I want you to do is to put a statue up there of a snake. And then what I want you to do is I want you to put that snake in the middle of the camp. And so when the people, when the snakes come in and they bite the people, if they would run to the, the bottom of that staff and they would look up and they would trust In me, I will heal them. 
And guess what happened? Moses did exactly that. And God's people, when they were bitten, when they were dying, they would crawl or however they would get to the post and they would come to this post and they would look up and they would believe they would be saved. Well, Jesus here is telling Nicodemus, saying that account that happened, that you believe in, that you know, he says, that account is pointing to me. He says, in a few days, in a while, in a, in a year or so, or, or a, a point of time, I am going to be that one that is going to be um, crucified to a cross, and I will be lifted up. I'll be lifted up on a cross, and I will pay for the sins of the world. And if people would yet but look at me and say, Jesus, save me, the work that I'm going to do on the cross will be, will be given to them. And now we come to the message of Jesus in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So Jesus has just torn down the foundation of Nicodemus' faith. And now he's going to build it back up again. That life which you have put on faulty ground, that foundation which will not secure you, to have a right relationship with God. He says, this is what will. And what we see here is about God. I want us to see two things about God from John 3.16. First of all, I want you to see that God loves. You see that right there? For God so loved the world. The motivation behind creation, the motivation behind salvation, the motivation behind what God does for us is love. Like the God of the universe loves you. The God of the universe loves me. Like he loves my baldness. Like he loves me. He loves, my, he, he loves me that I'm imperfect. He loves me. He loves me when I was a sinner doing my own things. He loved me then. He, God is a God of love that is motivated by love. He loves us, men, man, women, child. He loves us even though we rebel against him. Every single day, we shake your fist at God and say, God, you're not the ruler of me, but I want to be the ruler of my own life. God loves us then. But also look at the capacity of his love. Like God's love is enough for the whole world. Like I'm going to give you some Greek here real fast, okay? When he says the whole world, guess what he literally means? He means the whole world. Like He means everybody that has ever been born, ever will be born, is alive right now. The whole world. God's love is enough for all of those people. Like He loves them. So it doesn't matter where they were born or who they were born to. God's love is over all of them. God loves the good. God loves the bad. God loves the ugly. But we also see that God only didn't, didn't just love us, but God gave. God gave, we see he gave his only son. Now, what this means is Jesus was with God, Jesus is God, and they were there at the moment of, of creation, even before creation, as things were happening. God's plan has always been to send his son Jesus to save men from their sins. And so God gives completely his own son. God gives the gift to humanity that says, what you can't do for yourself, I will do through my son. And that's what we see through Jesus. Jesus provides. I want to read 17 through 22 for you to see what Jesus provides for us. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that life has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest the works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. We can see here what Jesus has provided. We see that Jesus lives the life we couldn't. Jesus lives every single day, every single moment in complete obedience to God. We can't do that. Jesus never shook his fist at God and said, God, I know a better way. Instead, he put that fist down and he lived his life in humble obedience to God. So he lived the life that we couldn't. And we also know when we see here that Jesus died the death that we deserve. You see, because we sin, because we rebel against God, what we get for that is punishment and we have to pay for our sins, eternity in hell. Like God's wrath is gonna come and pour out on those whom are disobedient, those that are condemned. But we see that Jesus dies on the cross and he takes the penalty and the punishment that was due us. But we also see here what Jesus provides. Jesus comes not to judge. Jesus doesn't come here to condemn us. Jesus has come so that we may be saved. Like, think about that. That's a flip for many people. Many people look at Jesus and say, man, he's just a judge. He, he wants to tell me all the things I should do and what I shouldn't do, what I can't do, what I can't do. No, Jesus has come so that you no longer have to live in your sin, but that you can live in life the way that you were made. So Jesus comes not to judge, but to save us. When we don't believe or place faith in Jesus Christ, we condemn ourselves. That's what it's saying there. We cannot save ourselves. So there's nothing inside of us that can save ourselves. We can't come to the place of where we do right in order so that God loves us more or have a relationship with him. But what we can do through our sin is we can condemn ourselves. But look here as well. And this is a piece that the world even today does not understand. So God's love is for everybody. But not everyone gets to experience a relationship with God. Why? Because the only way to experience this life, this relationship with God, the only path to eternal life or a right relationship with God is through Jesus. Like, who's the actor in all of this? It's all Jesus. It's all through God's Son. God's Son is the one that is doing the work here. It's God's Son is the one that is doing the saving. And so... We come to the place of where we see our only response, the only response to this message. The message is this, that through Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven. Through Jesus Christ, you can have a new life. Through Jesus Christ, you can experience a new birth. Through Jesus Christ, you can be called a son or daughter of God. Through Jesus Christ, you can be set aside so that you can reign with Jesus Christ in heaven for eternity. The wrath of God can be averted through your faith in Jesus Christ. And how do we do it? Through the Leaf. Look with me again in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave. Our response is who believe in him. It comes from our belief in Jesus Christ. That's our only response. Where we look at our lives, we come to the point and we say, look what a mess I've made of my life. And we repent from that. We say, you know what? I don't want to live this way anymore. There's a better way. There's this man Jesus that has come to take my place to fix my mess. If I would but believe in him. 
I will say I need him. So the question to you today is, do you believe in Jesus? Are you willing to take everything of your life, like the hope that you have for eternity, the hope you have for a relationship with God, are you willing to take it from whatever it is and place it in a man who is God himself? Are you willing to do that today? Now, your life's not going to be perfect after that, but you'll be right with God, and God will give you the power to walk this walk. He'll give you the promise that you'll be with him in heaven. Do you believe today? What does that mean? That means saying, I'm no longer going to live for myself, by myself, but I'm going to live with the power of Jesus in the hope and in the forgiveness of Jesus. If that's you here today, in just a few moments, we're going to sing a song Maybe you're here and you just are like, God isn't speaking to me. I want this that you're talking about. I don't really fully understand it, but I want it. I always sing that song. I'm going to be in the back. And if you want to come and just take my hand and say, Pastor, I want to know more about Jesus. I would love to share with you about that. Or maybe, maybe that's a little awkward for you. Well, we're going to have a time of fellowship after that. And, and after we sing, if you just want to grab someone else by the hand and just say, hey, t- teach me about Jesus. Man, I'm sure there are other people here besides myself that would love to tell you about how you can have faith in Jesus. But if you're here today and you are a believer, if you've already come to that place, I want to remind us as we close that the football season and John 3.16 have some great things in common. Like in the football game, like we go, I remember watching my dad, we, we were Lions fans growing up. So we would go to church on Sunday morning, we'd rush home, we'd, we'd grab some chicken, get the bucket chicken, get in front of the TV, we'd eat chicken and watch the Lions lose every single week. But I can remember my dad, like he sat in the, the dad chair at home eating the chicken and, and bucket in this arm. And then all of a sudden, like Barry Sanders or someone else would like be running and, and they would go towards and score a touchdown. And what would my dad do? My dad would like throw the chicken up in the air, like trying to catch the chicken. Well, my dad's screaming. He like freaked us all out because my dad had this yell. Like it was so loud. Like you're like, oh, dad, I'm frightened. And he would just be so exuberant about the lion scoring a touchdown, even though they would lose inevitably. He was so excited about them. He would always cheer them on. So in some ways, like we have a lot to celebrate. Like we, we cheer on our favorite team. We want them to win. But as believers, I want us to see this morning that God has already won. So as a believer, Jesus has already won. We have so much more to celebrate because what we could not do, like just like as spectators of the football team, like there's no matter amount how much you cheer, you can't help your team. Like you don't have the jersey, you don't have the number, you're not getting the paycheck. So you're cheering, screaming at the TV, screaming at the ref, it's not gonna help the team. But because we have faith in Jesus Christ, he's already won. So we can cheer. We can scream at the TV. We can scream at the word of God and just say, he's already done it. We are victors in Christ. What I could not do, I can't save myself. Jesus has already done. So we have much, much, much to celebrate. So we celebrate today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us. And we pray now, God, that you would just continue to work in our minds and hearts. Father, I'm sure that there are some that are here in this place today that have come from horrible weeks. Father, where they just feel like they've tried to do the right things and they maybe just have been beaten down by the world. Father, I pray today that their eyes would look to you.
Father, they would stop looking at their circumstances, but they would look to you as the hope of their salvation. And then you'd give them strength this morning. But Father, I'm also aware that there are some here today that are living in absolute rebellion against you. They think they know best. And they're trying to do their very best. But in the end, if they're honest with themselves, they know that they're failing and that there's a hole in their life that can only be filled by you. So I pray today, this morning, that your spirit would bring about conviction and that they would come to the place where they let go and just trust you. And Father, for those of us that are believers today that have experienced your grace and forgiveness, may we be people that live our lives celebrating what you've done where we're not shy about who our faith is in. And that we're able to say to the world when life goes horribly wrong that we still trust you because you are good. So God, continue to move in our hearts. And may we respond in the way that you desire. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.